Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. One of my favorite characters in the Bible is a man named Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Nehemiah, one reason I like him is because he was a man on a mission. You see, Nehemiah lived during a time when the people of Israel were experiencing the consequences of generations of disobedience to God. The people of Israel had wandered from God to the point where God was forced to bring his discipline upon them in the form of the Babylonian people coming, attacking them, and then carrying them away as a people group into captivity. And years later, 70 plus years later, Nehemiah found himself in a distant land, curious about God's people and God's city in Jerusalem, far from where he was. And one day, his brother, a man named Hanani, appeared. He had just been in Jerusalem, and so Nehemiah was dying to know, what is the state of God's city? And so his brother gave him the report, told him that the walls were broken down and that the gates were burnt with fire, that the consequences of the original invasion over 70 years earlier were still present, still visible, and that no one had rebuilt the city. So Nehemiah, he prayed. He prayed a prayer of confession, and then he prayed a prayer of volunteerism. He said, God, use my life, because he was the cupbearer to the king, the foreign king, a man named Artaxerxes at that time. Eventually, the day came where God answered Nehemiah's prayer, and through Artaxerxes, gave Nehemiah permission and provision and protection to move back to Jerusalem to rebuild God's city. And when Nehemiah got there, he discovered that the situation was worse than he had imagined. And after a little period of assessing the damage, Nehemiah began to corral the people and to get busy rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the gates. And after a little while, they experienced some success. God was blessing their endeavors. And with that blessing, the enemies of the people of Israel rose to the surface. They tried everything. They threatened Nehemiah, they attacked Nehemiah, they tried to negotiate with Nehemiah, they tried to join Nehemiah, they tried to spread rumors about Nehemiah, they tried everything to stop this man, but he would never entertain them. Finally, one day, a Jewish man, an Israelite, one of Nehemiah's guys, a man named Shemaiah, came up to him and told Nehemiah, he said, look man, they're plotting again to take your life. And I can offer you protection. I've got the keys to the temple, and if you come into the temple, I will keep you safe. But the thing that was happening behind the scenes is that Shemaiah had been paid off by Nehemiah's enemies. And they wanted to make Nehemiah, the fearless leader of Israel, run for his life and protect himself and leave the people exposed. And so Nehemiah knew what was going on. He knew that this wasn't right, and he knew that he should not run. But I want you to read and hear the response of Nehemiah in that moment. He said to Shemaiah in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 11, look at this. Should such a man as I run away? Should such a man as I run away? It's as if Nehemiah said, Do you know who you're talking to? I am a child of God. I have known the great God of heaven, and he has listened to my prayers. He's brought me all the way to this point. He's brought me this far. And victory after victory, success after success is accredited to him. And I belong to him. And I can't run away scared for my life, for I am his and he is mine. In other words, what you have in Nehemiah is a man, listen to this right now, he was bold because of what he knew. He behaved a certain way because he believed a certain thing. And I believe that this Nehemiah-like knowledge is necessary for modern Christians. If we are going to live the bold life that Christ wants us to live, then we must not forget who we are in Jesus. And I think John had this understanding as well. 
And so in our passage today, he's going to write to the church. He's going to write to us and tell us, this is who you are. He's going to tell the little children of the church that they are forgiven and they know the Father in heaven. He's going to tell the fathers in the church that they have known Jesus Christ personally and intimately. And he's going to remind the young men in the church that they are overcomers or can be overcomers because of the word of God working inside of them. And John wants us to internalize each truth so that we will be a bold people. So would you like your behavior to be altered by what you know? Would you like a boldness to flow from your life because of the knowledge of who you are? If, if you would, then this study this morning is for you. So that's the introduction, but let's read the actual passage itself in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. Just follow along in your Bibles, or we'll put it up on the screen for you as well. John writing says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. All right, so he writes to these three groups, but now he doubles back. End of verse 13, he says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. All right, this passage is really beautiful as it stands alone by itself. And maybe because I was gone last week and Pastor Josh took us into John chapter 15, you might have forgotten that John was not writing a bunch of poems to the, to the church. He was actually writing some very serious warnings before this little section. He was in the full blaze of apostolic warning. He was telling the church, look, there are certain tests to prove that you're in the faith. Do you obey God? Do you love other Christians? And do you believe in the true, legitimate, real, historical Jesus? And in the midst of all that warning, John takes a break. And he, in this little parenthesis, he gives a reminder, a, a way to protect this church. This little loving interlude is pure poetry. You've got repetition inside of it. He mentions each group twice. You've got meter and lyric that are involved. It's like John knew how a good song, or sometimes if you've ever had a bad song get stuck in your head, he knew how a song can get stuck in your head, get stuck in your heart. It's kind of like John's way as the old father of the whole church to do a hush little baby, don't you cry, John's gonna sing you a lullaby kind of moment. But before getting into this song and these lyrics, we should ask a question. Who did John have in mind when he wrote this little song? You know, some people think that John is writing to three stages in the Christian life and that we should then figure out, are we little children or are we the young people or are we the older mature people in Christ Jesus? But I'm gonna take it and I think that John was writing to one particular group, the whole body of Christ. Part of the reason I think that is because all through the letter, John refers to every single Christian as his little children. So I just think that he's not discriminating, he's not thinking about one particular group. Another reason I think that he's writing to everybody is because the benefits of each group can be experienced by every single Christian, no matter your age or your experience in the Christian life. In other words, the children in this passage celebrate that they are forgiven by Jesus. Well, no matter how long you've been in Christ, you should celebrate the fact that you have been forgiven by Jesus. The fathers, they celebrate that they have known Jesus. And you can be on day two of your Christian journey and be knowing Jesus. I think he's speaking to everyone. I don't think that he is only speaking of young and old, male and female, but everyone in Christ Jesus. So for our purposes, we're gonna take the passage in that way, but we're gonna look at it in three sections, starting with the children, like John did, then looking at the fathers, then finally looking at the young men. So let's start with, number one, the little children who he says were forgiven by the Father. We're going to put it on the screen for you again so you can see verse 12 where he talks about the children and verse 13 where he talks about them a second time and we'll read it again. He says, 
I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Now let's look at the second time that he wrote the children to the children. He said, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. So he changed it there in the second uh, line. I, I'm writing to you first because your sins are forgiven for his namesake, and secondly, because you know the Father. Now let's say this first. Believers in Christ Jesus, if you're a Christian here this morning, you believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You believe that he died on the cross for your sin. If you're a believer, you've placed your faith in Jesus, then the Bible teaches that you are a child of God. And the Bible teaches you become a child of God in two ways. The first way that you become a child of God is through the mode of adoption. Look at this verse, Romans 8, verse 15. Paul writes and says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, when we think of adoption in our modern era, we usually think of a family taking in an infant or a young child, but adoption in the Roman world went all the way up into adulthood. And if you were a beloved servant in a large household, the master, especially if they had no heir, could adopt you. And when they adopted you, your whole name was changed, all your debts were wiped away, the master paid for them, and you became the legitimate heir of that master. You got a new name, a new family, you were totally in this new family. And for us as Christians, when we are adopted by God into his family, that's the same thing that takes place. We get a new name, all of our debts have been paid, amen, and we become new in Christ Jesus. But second, Believers are also made children of God through the mode of birth. Jesus said in John chapter 3, three verse 3, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So when you become a believer, you are adopted, but you are also born into his family. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in Galatians 6, verse 15, we're taught that we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. And that has taken place through the mode of birth. So as Christians, you have been adopted into God's family, but you also have also been born into God's family. Now, now, why would God bring us into his family in those two unique and different ways? Well, adoption speaks of the position that God has granted to you. You know, before you were a Christian, before you were in Christ, you were in the family of Adam. You had the inheritance of Adam. And let me tell you, it's not an inheritance that any of us would want. But with Jesus, you get his position. In Christ, adopted by God, you get the position of Jesus. But also, being born into the family speaks of getting a new nature, not just a new position, but a new nature, that we're actually in relationship with the living God because he has remade us from the inside out. And John wants us, as God's little children, to remember something very specific. Look at it there in verse 12. We're to remember that our sins are forgiven for his namesake. To say it another way, because of Jesus' nature and character, that's what his name means, we've been forgiven of all of our sins. Now it's plain from the first few pages of scripture that sin is a massive and immovable hindrance to knowing God. It is seen biblically as the big problem in humanity. And we couldn't solve this problem, so God, because of his character and his nature, provided for the forgiveness of sins. And listen to this, God wants to be known as the one who made forgiveness possible. Here's a, here's a little quiz for you. Do you know what verses in the Bible are quoted in the Bible more than any other verses? This is another way of asking the question, do you know what place in the Bible God quotes about himself more than any other quotation? This will help you understand what God really wants us to think of him, how he really wants to be known because he repeats it over and over and over and over again. It's this. It's from Exodus chapter 34, when God revealed himself to Moses. He said, the Lord, 
the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, God wants to be known for the way that he, though he cannot overlook guilt, mercifully and graciously forgives sin. God wants to be known as the forgiver. So he said it to Moses, and then he quoted what he said to Moses over and over again throughout the rest of the Bible. And you won't celebrate forgiveness until you realize how badly you needed it, how badly sin broke your relationship with God. You can't appreciate forgiveness until you see sin as something which needs eradication or removal. But God does it through the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to some of the things that God does to our sin as listed throughout Scripture. In Psalm 103, in Zechariah 13, it says that he removes our sin. In Micah 7, it says that he casts our sin into the depths of the sea. In Isaiah 44, it says that he sweeps our sin away and that like a cloud blows away or a mist evaporates, he deletes our sin. In Isaiah 38, it says that he casts our sin behind his back. In Colossians 2 and Hebrews 9, it says he sets it aside and puts it away. In Psalm 32 and Romans 4, it says that he covers it. In Psalm 51 and Jeremiah 18, it says that he puts it out of his sight. In Acts 22, Ezekiel 36, and 1 John 1, it says that he washes us, cleanses us, and gives us new, clean hearts. In Isaiah chapter 1, it says that he purges the scarlet of sin and makes us like pure white wool or snow. You see, the Bible has all of these images to describe what God does with our sin. But the point is that, the, that God is one who desires to forgive his people, to separate our sin from us. And I don't want you to be a people that are mistaken because there are Bible teachers, there are theologians out there who will say that the point of Jesus' coming was not to deal with sin. They'll say that Jesus died as a mere example of what it means to be sacrificial. They'll even say or go so far as to say that Jesus' death was accidental. But Jesus died intentionally as a substitute for you and for me. Remember Joseph when he was engaged to be married to Mary, how confused he was when he realized that Mary was pregnant. He was really baffled over the whole thing. He knew that he had nothing to do with it, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him at night. Remember what the angel said to him? He said, Matthew 1, 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the great mission of Jesus. Why did he come? To save us from our sins. 1 Timothy 2, verse 6 says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Peter 3, 18 says that for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see, Jesus did everything that he did with that singular hope and purpose that he could deal with your sin problem, that he could deal with my sin problem. He submitted himself to the beatings and the mockery of the Roman soldiers when they put a crown of thorns upon him and as a mob beat him and put a purple cloak upon him and said, hail, king of the Jews, and spit upon him. He submitted to the scourging of Pilate when they tied his arms to a post and brought a flogging upon his back and tore his back to pieces. He submitted to carrying his cross to Mount Calvary and allowed his hands and his feet to be pierced and even said, my father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The reason that Jesus endured all of that so that he could make a way for us to be forgiven, separated, cleansed, purified from our sin. And what John announces to these little children in verse 14 is that not only were they forgiven of all of their sin, but now they know the Father. 
You see, what we must know is that our relationship with the Father, our ability to interact with God, it cost Jesus Christ his life. It didn't cost us anything. All we had to do was believe in what Jesus did for us. That didn't cost a thing. But it cost Jesus everything. Not only the suffering that I mentioned, but did you know this? Did you know that the Bible teaches that Jesus, though glorified for all of eternity, though in a glorified state, did you know that the Bible teaches that he took on humanity for us forever? It wasn't just a temporary costume that Jesus wore. No, the reality is that he became flesh forever, in a sense, for you and for me. Remember when the disciples were there watching Jesus ascend into heaven. He went into heaven and they just waited. They didn't get the great commission yet. They didn't know that they were supposed to go into all the world and preach the gospel even though Jesus had told them. So some angels had to come and talk to them like, hey, you guys can't wait here forever. He's coming back. And they said, he's coming back in the same manner in which you saw him depart. The idea being that when Jesus returns, he'll still be in that glorified human body. It says in Philippians 3, verse 21, that Jesus will, in that day, transform our lowly bodies to be, listen to this, like his glorious body. And right now, well, in the glory of heaven, Jesus mediates for us as a man. It says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He's the son of God and God the son, but there's something about Jesus, even in his glorified state, that speaks of his humanity that he took on forever for you and for me. When John had his great revelation of Jesus Christ, he saw Jesus in heaven as the lamb of God who had been slain. There's something about his wounds, his humanity, that we're going to interact with for all of eternity. It cost Jesus greatly to make a way for you and me to be forgiven of our sin. So if that's the case, and that's who we are, we are forgiven so we can know the Father, if that's the case, then think about Nehemiah. He said, should such a man as I run away, well, what what would a people who are forgiven, how would we respond? I think for one, the forgiveness of God would drive us into using or or experiencing our relationship with the Father. If Jesus' blood and suffering and forgiveness made a way for us to know the Father, then we should go know the Father, amen? Let's experience our relationship with the Lord. At Christmas time, you know, my family, we're like a, we're a open our presents one at a time kind of family. We get in a big circle, we have the presents there, and we, we in order, you know, take turns. Even with stockings, we pull one thing out at a time, we take turns. I know some of you are like a bunch of wild animals, and you just get into it, but we're domesticated in our house, you know, and we kind of go in order and all of that. But, but I love using the gifts that people give me right away. So, you know, I'll open a thing, I get a sweatshirt, I put the sweatshirt on. You know, I get some new sweatpants, I put the sweatpants on. I get a beanie, I put the beanie on. I get a gadget, I open it up. They give me candy in my stocking and I start eating the candy. I just wanna use everything that people give to me. If God has given to us, by the blood of Jesus, access to himself, then we should use that access. But knowing we're forgiveness should also drive out guilt and shame. You know, Jesus can cast away sin committed by you, but he can also deal with sin committed against you. What you've done and what's been done to you is removed by the blood of Christ. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 5, that by his stripes we are healed. And another thing that knowing we're forgiven should produce, listen to me now, It should produce compassion and forgiveness for others. A person who understands how much they've been forgiven for will never be on a high horse looking down at other human beings. They'll understand what was required for them to become righteous and know that it required the blood of Jesus and it will humble their hearts. All right, let's look at our second group. Let's look at the fathers. In verse 13 and 14, the fathers were in relationship with Jesus In verse 13, this is what John said in his first line to the fathers. He said, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Then in verse 14, he said it again, and he just repeated himself almost verbatim. He said, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from 
the beginning. All right, in this second group, we have mature Christians, mature believers. And I don't want you to let the age or the gender give you too much pause, like I mentioned earlier. Because to be a father, here's what it speaks of. It speaks of maturity. I think that a 17-year-old young woman can attain to elements of a father's spiritual maturity. You don't have to be old and you don't have to be male to have a sense of spiritual fatherhood. What are, what are, what are biological or earthly fathers? Well, they're meant to protect, they're meant to provide, they're meant to teach, they're meant, meant to lead other people. Many young men have discovered over the years that to be a father is a position of sacrifice. You know, you had your life and what you were doing and what you were into, you got married, you had children, and you just realized, whoa, this is the game changer. I can't be about what I was about before. I've got to change my priorities financially, time-wise, all of that, to point towards these people that I'm called to protect, provide, teach, and lead. And the reality is that as fathers are stable people, you know, the children are the opposite. And when our children were young, Christina and I would discipline them whenever they threw fits, you know, as kids do. They throw tantrums here and there, sometimes in the most embarrassing places, right? You know, where you're just like, we have got to leave Target right now. This is so embarrassing kind of thing. I'm so sorry, everybody. But though we knew that those episodes would come, we also, as they grew, would go through a little exercise with them when they, when they went through that. Eventually, once they were calm enough and we would help them calm down, we would make them fold their hands. We would make them look us in the eye. It was adorable, you know, just these little people with diapers on looking at us. And we'd explain to them what you just did was not right. You know, you didn't get what you wanted. You threw a fit. Look at me. I'm an adult. I'm not allowed to do that. You threw a fit, you need to apologize. And they would say, you know, I'm sorry for my fit. I'm sorry for my fit is what they would do. Look, fathers are those who have matured past fit throwing. (laughs) They're solid people. You know, they're not in that stage of life. Other people depend on them. Their lives are laid down for the betterment of others. Spiritual fathers are the same way. They take care of other people. In various ways and to differing degrees, spiritual fathers with great maturity and sacrifice. They take care of others. They're not always receiving, they give. So when you think about it like this, then in the Bible, the good Samaritan was a spiritual father. The apostles, in the way that they took care of the church, were fathers. And remember that moment on the cross when Jesus looked at his mother Mary and pointed to John, and, or nodded to John and said, woman, behold your Son, He was just probably a teenager at that stage of his life. She was going to, in a sense, operate like a spiritual father in his life, a spiritual adult. What makes, in John's mind, someone a spiritual father or spiritually mature? Well, notice what he says twice. He says, you know him who is from the beginning. Who is that? Well, in John's mind, when he talks about the beginning in his gospel and in his letters, He's talking about a few different places. One time he talks about the beginning. He's speaking of the beginning of the world as we know it and how Jesus was there creating everything. He also speaks of the beginning of the gospel, that when Jesus incarnated, it was a fresh new beginning for humanity. And he also talks about the beginning as an event in our lives where when we become Christians, it's a fresh, brand new beginning, a new start. And in all of those instances, who is him who is from the beginning? It's Jesus, all right? This is like children's ministry. The right answer is Jesus. That's who it is. He's talking about Jesus. They had, in a special way, known Jesus. Now, this is amazing to me that John talks like this. Because I don't know if you remember this, but when we started this letter about a month ago, in the first four verses, John basically announced to them, look, I'm one of the last apostles I saw Jesus, I heard Jesus, I touched Jesus, I spent time with Jesus, and we apostles, we have spent our lives telling you about Jesus that we knew. We proclaim the real Jesus to you. But now he's saying the people who are spiritually mature, they also know Jesus. 
doesn't mean that John's interaction with Jesus wasn't unique and special. It definitely was. But what he's saying is we have an opportunity today to know Jesus in a fresh and powerful way. This is a significant mark of Christian maturity. What he's not talking about is mere intellectual knowledge of Jesus, able to recite facts about who Jesus is. But he's talking about the importance of actually experiencing Jesus. These fathers had known Christ in their daily lives. Let me give you an example of this from Luke's writing. When Luke wrote the book of Luke, he wrote all the way from Jesus' birth to his ascension. That's everything. But look at what he said at the beginning of the second book he wrote in the Bible, the book of Acts. He says this in the first uh, verse or the first sentence. He says, in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. What that means is that in Luke's mind, the incarnation through the ascension was only the beginning of what? Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching. The book of Acts to to Luke was the continuation of Jesus' life and teaching. In Acts, they watched Jesus. In Acts, they experienced Jesus. He was still working. They knew him. And Jesus today wants us to know him in the same way. He, he wants us to experience his power. He wants us to experience life with him. There's a story in the life of Jesus that I've always loved that I think illustrates this. You know, you guys know that the religious leaders really didn't like the way that Jesus treated the Sabbath. It was the seventh day of the week. It was, they, they set it aside as holy, and they made all these rules and requirements. And one thing that really bothered them is that Jesus was in the habit of healing people And he would even heal people on the Sabbath, the audacity of doing such a thing. They would tell the the people, the masses that were coming to be healed by Jesus, they'd say things like, hey, there's six days in the week in which we can do work. Come and be healed on those days, all right? So they were such a bummer, you know? They were so so grumpy, you know, like, this is a holy day. Nobody should be allowed to be healed on this particular day. Well, one day in the life of Jesus on a Sabbath, He was there in a synagogue, and there was a man there with a withered hand. He might have even been put there by the religious leaders to test Jesus. Jesus saw the man. He saw the religious leaders. They watched him like a hawk. And Jesus turned to them and asked them, he said, hey, is it it right to do good or evil on the Sabbath day? What a great question that Jesus asked. I mean, there's like no answer to that question, right? If they say good, then he heals the guy. If they say evil, then everybody looks at them like, what? (laughs) Evil on the Sabbath? But then Jesus had the man stand. And he said to the man in Luke 6, verse 10, he said, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Jesus just had the man stand. I I imagine Jesus like this with his, his, his hands folded, looking at the man, looking at the religious leaders and saying, stretch out your hand. And the guy stretches out his hand. He's totally and completely healed. And I just imagine Jesus looking at the religious leaders like, what? I didn't do anything. I just told the guy to stretch out his hand. He didn't do the normal thing of touching him or praying over him or pronouncing a blessing over him. He just told the man to stretch out his hand. But I think the story illustrates a common hurdle in the Christian life. There's Jesus. He wants us to stretch out into obedience to him. And he knows that when we step out into obedience, his power will be there for us when we do. And he's looking forward to the moment where we experience his power. But too often, we won't do it. And this keeps us from experiencing Jesus like we could. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. He said, work out your own salvation. So you've got salvation, live it out with fear and trembling for It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, the mature believer lives that kind of life. They live out the salvation that Christ has given them, and as they do, they experience the power of Jesus working in them. God is there to help us not just want to obey him, but to have ability to actually obey him, to to do for his good pleasure. He doesn't only create desire, but also ability. That power is waiting for us when we step out, when we stretch out our hand. So you remember Nehemiah, right? He he knew who he was, so he said, should such a man as I flee? And here in 1 John, regarding the fathers, what does knowing Christ, 
What does that do to us? I think an experiential knowledge of Christ keeps us from so many of the pressures that our world lays upon us. It's trying to conform us into its image. But when you've experienced the power of Jesus, you just don't want any of that stuff anymore. You're so satisfied and excited by what Jesus is doing through your life. You know, last weekend I was up in Napa teaching at a men's conference. And then on Saturday, uh, that was Saturday, then Sunday I went and taught at a church plant in Walnut Creek, a friend of mine started a few years ago. But in the church in Napa, Christina and I, we've become friends with the pastor and his wife over the last few years, and they have a, an amazing story. She grew up in Napa, and at some point after college and all of that, addiction took over her life, and to the point where she was living on the streets. And sometimes the first pastor of this church up in Napa, he's no longer the pastor anymore, but he would at times open up the church lobby and let her sleep in that lobby at nighttime. And after years of living on the streets, she eventually moved back east and attended a Christian rehab program. And she became a Christian, became a believer, graduated from the program, stayed and worked, and then eventually ascended into leadership, and it was during that time that she met a young up-and-coming pastor, and they fell in love with each other and were eventually married. And eventually, they decided to move back to Napa to help serve in that particular church. And as the years ticked by, eventually he was asked, her husband was asked to become the next pastor of this church. So now, the very church lobby that she used to sleep in as an addict she stands in as a loving servant of Jesus, welcoming the church every single Sunday and every single Wednesday night. And right now, with Pastor Mike's help, they're getting ready to launch their own regeneration and their own bridge ministry there in Napa. It's an awesome story. And if you asked her if she'd like to go back to that old life, she'd say, should such a woman as I go back? I've experienced the love and the grace and the power of Christ. I've known him who is from the beginning. Why would I want that old life? I cannot return. You just, you gotta experience Jesus in your life. All right, let's look at the last group together, the young men. They're found in verse 13 and 14. In verse 13, John talks about them in this way. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then in verse 14, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. All right, so here we have the last group John mentions, the young men. I think that they at least in part represent the great middle section of the Christian life. It's cool for us to enjoy our forgiveness. It's cool for us to look back and remember that we've known the power of Jesus. We've known Christ. But we also have to know that there's this battleground that we're living in. And the young men, you know, historically have been the ones sent out into battle, and that's the same thing in the Christian life. This, this time where, you know, each one of us, we've got to roll up our sleeves and serve. And we have to remember this portion of the Christian life. You know, it's important for us to engage in Christ's war. There's work to do in God's kingdom. I, I think there's always a job for you to do in God's program here on earth. But twice what John mentions, notice it there in verse 13 and 14, he says that the young men had overcome the evil one. You know, they were victorious over the prince of this age, the devil. They, they'd struggled, they'd battled, they'd fought, but they'd won. They'd vanquished the foe. And, and I'm sure if I took a show of hands this morning, all of us would say, yes, I would like to be victorious. Who would like to be victorious? We'd all love to have victory. Some of us, we'd want victory over our sinful passions and desires. Some of us want to be victorious in impacting God's kingdom or this world with God's kingdom. We want to break habits and traditions that our parents or our friends have placed upon us. We want to be set free. We want victory, right? You guys want victory. Well, John tells us how their victory came about. Notice it. He says, first, they were strong. That seems obvious, they'd overcome, so it's not a surprise that they were strong. 
But then he tells us how they were strong. He says, the word of God abides in you. This helps us understand how they became strong. They became strong because the word of God effectively, interactively influenced their lives. I was talking to a friend of mine recently who told me about this awesome and very awkward interaction he had with another guy where my friend was out and about just kind of running errands and he saw this guy walking through this store that he was in and this particular man that he saw had these huge arms, huge chest, just was totally chiseled. And my friend's the kind of guy that just says what he's feeling, says what he's thinking. And so he blurted out to the guy, he's like, how did you do that? And as he said it, he started touching the guy's arms. How did you do that? And the guy was real nice about it, and he told him. <laughs> he started telling him about his nutrition plan and his workout plan. He gave him the whole deal on this is how this happened. But think about that question. How did you do that? The implication is really simple. Strength doesn't just show up. It has to be developed. You'd never see someone like that walking around and just think, you know, they're born that way. No, there's plenty of people you might look at and say, yeah, they were born like that. But someone that's in that kind of shape, you say they did something to add that strength into their lives. Last week, Josh taught us about the life of fruitfulness that's made possible by abiding in Jesus but here, John tells us that these young made, men were made strong as the word abided in them. God's word shaped them. God's word was the thing that made them strong. This is a great conclusion to John's song, by the way. Because what did he say about the children? Who had the children known? They'd known the Father. Who had the fathers known? They'd known Jesus Christ. You'd almost expect John to come in and say, and the young men knew the third person of the Trinity. They knew the Holy Spirit. But instead he says that they knew the word of God. But that's perfect, that's appropriate because like Paul said in Ephesians six seventeen, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. It's like John in his mind is imagining the way that the spirit wants to build us up. He wants to use the word, he wants to use scripture. Some of you have heard the book of Joshua, and the other day one of my daughters said, I think the most quoted verse in all of Joshua has got to be the part about being strong and courageous. It comes from, from Joshua chapter one, where three times God said to Joshua, who had the new job of taking over for Moses, he said, be strong and courageous. But I want you to notice where the strength and courage came from. It says this, he said, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the, all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you, that's the Bible, do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Where did Joshua's boldness and courage come from? Not from the pump up of a sermon, not from the pump up of his mixtape, but it came from obedience. As he stayed true to the word of God, didn't turn from it to the right or the left, he had every reason to be confident that God's blessing was gonna come rushing down upon his life. Remember last week, Josh taught Josh, John 15, and he said this, if you abide in me, John 15, verse seven, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That's strength. What that is is a person whose mind and heart and will has been so changed by the Spirit of God pumping the Word of God into them that now the very things that they pray for to God are so in line with God's desire and will that God just says, I'm gonna do everything that you ask because your requests have been shaped by my word abiding inside of you. Man, that is strength. That's where we want to be. So remember Nehemiah again. He was bold because he knew who he was. Are you in this way? Do you know that you're made strong by the truth of God's word? Do you know 
that spiritual power increases along with God's word in you. It saddens me that there are movements in the modern church right now that divorce scripture from spiritual power. They think they can have all this spiritual strength, but know little of God's word. What Paul said in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's a way of saying, get it inside of your life and heart. I've watched this unfold in another friend of mine, not the biceps guy, but a different friend in a real powerful way. This particular friend of mine, he became a Christian only a couple years ago. And I started noticing that his growth was so rapid. It fell overnight, but there was a process. He did friendships differently. He did marriage differently. He did parenting differently, finances differently, church service differently, church attendance differently, community differently. Everything was just changing so rapidly, this brand new Christian. And I began to ask questions and investigate what's going on. Like, how is this happening in his life? I quickly discovered it it felt to me like there was not even one minute of Bible teaching that I'd recorded or Bible teaching that I'd written that he had not yet consumed. He was just voraciously getting into God's word and not just through me, but through many others. He was just digging into scripture, letting that word get into his life, not even just through others, but for himself. And he's completely changed, rock to the core. He's real humble. If you asked him if he knows the Bible very well, he'd say, I barely know the Bible at all. I barely know the Bible at all. But I guarantee you, he knows the Bible well. For such a a, a brand new believer, he knows scripture better than some who have been in Christ for decades because he's poured his life into it and it is abiding in him. He's been made strong by the word. All right, so there we have it. We've got these three groups. We're forgiven and know the Father like the children. We've known Jesus like the fathers and we're victorious by the strength of the word like these young men. All right, I've been closing recently by giving you some applications, so I'm gonna blast you with seven suggestions again to close out our time together from this passage of scripture, and then I'll just close in prayer today. Here's some application for you to consider. Number one, remind yourself of who you are by reading and rereading the New Testament's letters. If it's important for us to know who we are and that changes our behavior then we need to really get into and study who we are. And the New Testament letters, in large part, will declare that to you. They'll remind you of that. And they'll help you. And you might even know certain things about who you are in Christ Jesus, but when you get into those letters, they remind you afresh. So read and reread, study the New Testament letters. Number two, replace I should with I now can. Replace I should with I now can. You see, if you're truly forgiven and you've been adopted into the family and born again into the family of God, then you've got a whole new nature going on. And it's no longer just a like, I know this is what God wants and I should do this or I should do that. Now you get to proclaim, I actually can do those things. You know, God is working in my life from the inside out. I don't have to go back to that old life. I can be obedient to the Lord. Number three, reorient your thinking about when Jesus' ministry happened. Reorient your thinking about when Jesus' ministry happened. You know, Luke, John, these guys thought Jesus came, he lived, died, you know, was buried, rose, and ascended. That was the beginning of his life and teaching. He's still, in a different way, working and moving today. So reorient your thinking about when Jesus and his ministry happened. He's doing stuff right now, today. Number four, recount God's faithfulness from a past time when you stepped out in scary obedience. You know, because if you want to experience the power of Jesus in your life, you're going to have to, you know, he told his disciple, he told Peter to get out of the boat, and Peter experienced the power of Jesus, you know, for a little while, but he experienced it. And there are going to be moments where the Lord's calling you And you have to go back and remember, you know, there was another time where I was scared to do this thing that he asked me to do, but he was faithful and he was good and he was with me in that endeavor. Number five, go on a new adventure with Jesus. You know, the Christian life should never be a boring experience. There's always something that Jesus is asking us to do that is stretching, exciting, 
new, fresh, someone to disciple, a ministry to involve ourselves with or to launch or start. And, and this is exciting. So go on the new adventures that Jesus puts in front of you. Number six, protect daily time in God's word. If the young men were made strong by the word of God, then we gotta get into the word of God. It's not gonna, ha- you know, some of you liked the Matrix movies when they came out. Remember how they learned stuff back then? They like plug into the computer and it just beep, downloaded, like now I know jujitsu. That's not how it's gonna happen to know the word of God. You're gonna have to protect the daily time and you're gonna have to learn it before you're gonna know jujitsu, okay? So protect that daily time in God's word. And then number seven, I'll explain this, but number seven, let the Psalms replace Instagram. Let the Psalms replace Instagram. I'm not trying to knock you if you like Instagram and you're into it or whatever and you like doing your hearts and everything and I'm not trying to knock that. But what I am saying is that I think it's fairly observable that human beings in the West, we have, by and large, many of us, filled in the blank spaces, the gray areas of life with some kind of um, more mindless screen activity. I'd encourage you, you know, if you're in line at the grocery store, see what it's like to open up your Bible app and go through a proverb or go through a psalm. Take a little five-minute moment, say, I need a break. I'm just going to scan through the life of Jesus. I'm going to look at the life of Christ and the Gospels, you know, something like that. So that's what I mean by let the Psalms replace Instagram. There's a place for that, but I think you should be disciplined about where that's going to happen in your life rather than it just being a responsive thing where you're just always like, oh, just pull out my phone and just kind of mindlessly go through that. Put your mind on the things of Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.